0: Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Earlier this month, Congress voted to revoke a rule set forth by the Obama administration that banned the sale of guns to people who are registered as receiving mental disability support from the Social Security Administration. About 75,000 Americans would have had their names added to the National Background Check database, and that would have prevented them from legally purchasing guns unless they appealed. Joining us on the line is U.S. Representative Tim Murphy, Republican, serving southwestern Pennsylvania. That includes Washington and Allegheny counties. Congressman Murphy is the only licensed psychologist in Congress and he supported overturning the gun ban. Congressman Murphy, welcome to the program. Good morning. It's great to be with you. All right. A little bit of background. There's a little bit of lengthy with, with some background here, but bear with me for just a moment. The reaction to mass shootings uh, in this country have tended to follow a pattern. The first question that we would always ask ourselves is, why did this happen? And then there usually would be a call for more restrictions on guns. That still does happen. But after the mass shootings at Virginia Tech, where the shooter who had been diagnosed with a mental illness but still was able to buy a gun, and then Sandy Hook, where another young man diagnosed with several mental illnesses carried out the shooting. Limiting those diagnosed with mental illness became part of the conversation and the priority. So when Congress took this action, Congressman, it surprised many people. Uh, What was the reaction that you've gotten to it?
1: Well, uh, there's a lot of confusion in terms of what this action really was. And so if I may take a moment to explain, uh, first of all, as a psychologist, as a mental health professional, the only practicing mental health professional in the House of Representatives or actually in Congress at all, I support the issue of a person with a serious mental illness, particularly propensity towards violence. Then uh, they should not have access to guns. That's the law. Uh, Secondly, there was a 2007 bill that I voted for that actually said that these records of those who have a serious mental illness, who may have been on a 302 involuntary commitment, who meet the criteria, should have their names put on the mix list. Because what was happening, and Pennsylvania was among the states, that data was not going to the mix list. Uh, hospitals were claiming that HIPAA privacy laws prevented them from doing that. And that, by the way, was one of the problems that occurred at Virginia Tech. Uh, other laws that prevent the family from even knowing this young man had uh, problems or was in care uh, prevent them from doing things. So what this action uh, Congress did, it did not repeal the 2007 law, which says these records need to go on. What it does do is say you got to go back to the drawing board and handle this a different way. Because basically what they said is the Social Security Administration workers, the clerks there, et cetera, are to take the data of anybody who has someone uh, who is uh, a designated payee, that is, the Social Security checks go to them because they can't handle their finances, and those names are to go on to the next list. Now, my concern is, in a situation like this, that you have to make sure that that person really does have what's called the adjudication, a judge or a court or a, a properly defined panel says that this person meets these criteria or a physician, psychiatrist, psychologist has actually evaluated this person, says this person is uh, meets this criteria and <clears throat> therefore moves on. What I see is that what happened in, this, uh, in the executive order was they hit this too broadly, and that affected people's rights. There's been many a case where a person has had le- some level of mental illness and even uh, had their uh, rights to possess a firearm <clears throat> suspended who can go back to court and make an appeal that uh, they're, they're fine and they can, they can do that. I've seen many a veteran in my work in the Navy, I'm a Navy psychologist, of a person who may have 100% disability, but still wants to go hunting or target practice or something like that, and so that's fine. <clears throat> what I see we have to do here is make sure that the legal criteria to protect someone's rights are met. So it isn't just having mental illness, or it isn't just having someone get your social security checks for you. But you really meet this standard, and that's why, in this case, the ACLU, disability rights organizations, and others said, this isn't going to fly to have a broad brush of anybody who is a de- has a designated payee automatically. Has this right taken away?
0: Yeah, that that is something that is very unique about this situation. In that the National Rifle Association, the American Civil Liberties Union, and as you mentioned, a number of uh, organizations uh, for that support those with disabilities and mental health uh, organizations uh, are in favor of this ban, but. Let me go back a little bit. You know, one of the one of the things I've learned over the years when we're talking about mental illness, and it's a word that you used uh, when you were talking about this, you said serious mental illness. What is a serious mental illness as opposed to maybe the 75,000 people on this list that the Social Security Administration would have put on the database?
1: Well, a serious mental illness may be someone with schizophrenia, bipolar, severe depression, schizoaffective disorder. <clears throat> but just because one may have may be in one of those categories does not necessarily mean they're violent. You need to go to the next step where that person is uh, not able to care for themselves. Uh, and of course, with some of these uh, illnesses like schizophrenia, every time you have a break, a breakdown, it, it, it impairs you more neurologically you end up in this long-term downward spiral. And when someone has reached that level where the physicians, the courts, say this person is no longer uh, capable of handling themselves, let alone their finances, uh, they reach more of the criteria. But notice what I said here: is You actually have a physician or court or someone making that determination. What, what I get concerned about is just having a Social Security worker do that. I mean, even the inspector general for the Social Security Administration Um, said that much of this is just a matter of uh, personal opinion uh, to call someone mental defective and not a scientific decision. So uh, even within their own administration, they said this does not meet the criteria. So I think we go back, we need to clean this up, we need to make sure we protect someone's rights, uh, just because they're mentally ill doesn't mean they're violent, uh, and just because someone's violent doesn't mean they're mentally ill, but make sure we have a solid criteria here which protects the citizens and protects this person's rights.
0: You know, you know, as a mental health professional, it is true that very few people who are diagnosed with mental illness become violent. But it also is true that those who have been diagnosed with a mental illness are three times more likely to become violent. And something you just described that becomes a bit of a challenge is diagnosing or at least predicting, a professional predicting, maybe predicting is not the right word, Being but being able to tell when someone diagnosed with a mental illness could become violent?
1: Sure. Well, there's some sloppiness in their system which needs to be fixed. First of all, we don't have enough psychiatrists, psychologists in the nation. Half the counties in America don't have one. So what happens if someone is uh, seriously mentally ill and maybe the police are called because they may be acting erratically or even acting violently, Many times the police will take them to a hospital and the hospital says, gee, we don't have enough hospital beds, we don't have a psychiatrist, go home. Or sadly, many, in many cases, they're just taken to jail or they lay in a hospital bed for days and they're, dis- they're discharged after a few days, and no one really gets them to that next level of saying you have an involuntary commitment, so you can't get a gun. <clears throat> the issue with someone who is seriously mentally ill and has a history of violence, they are 15 times more likely to be violent in the future than someone who is not in treatment. So, excuse me. If they're if they're not in treatment, they're fifteen times more likely than someone who is in treatment. So we know that someone who has a record here is a pretty good predictor. Now, just taking the average person in the street, a person with stress or anxiety, it's nearly impossible to predict because most of those people will not have uh, violence. But we do know in some cases there is. So this is where even the Social Security Administration says, well, just because someone can't handle their finances and some level of mental illness, therefore they they can't uh, go target practice or hunting. That's not a solid criteria. I believe you need to make sure you evaluate that person and we're not just punting because some worker says they fit into a category. I mean, I would hate that to happen to anybody. If it happens here, what, what, happens, what else, if it happens in another category that someone else says, based upon some other criteria, we think that person should have some other constitutional right taken away? And, and this is an area we all ought to be concerned about.
0: But you know, look. With that said, that uh, we have a shortage of mental health professionals across the country, aren't we then playing with fire that uh, there are a lot of people walking the streets who have not been diagnosed, who could be a danger to themselves or to others?
1: Well, there is because it's a failure of the system. The bill that I have worked on for years, and the president uh, President Obama finally signed into law last December, called the Helping Families with Mental Health Crisis Act. It's a landmark bill. Some of the biggest Changes forward in mental health care in the last 50 years, and part of it is geared toward getting more providers, <clears throat> having more hospital beds available. we have assured about 100,000 hospital beds in Pennsylvania, one of 49 other states that have a seriously short supply. More directed grants, the research in this area, more help beds, uh, rural things. A wide range of things. There, that is the culprit. The unfairness of what we're doing to treat illness is a criminal problem. Is just awful, and no wonder there's a stigma. You can't get care. You can't get care, of, of, especially if you're in a rural area. You're oftentimes, you're 10 times more likely to be in jail than a hospital. Those things need to be addressed, and Pennsylvania needs to take a serious look at this. For example, track the individual, and don't just say, here's what we're going to spend on community mental health. You have to see that if you're not providing care for this individual, this person may end up in an emergency room, may end up homeless, may end up in a county morgue, may end up in jail. And and if you look at many of those lifetime costs, it's far more expensive for the state to not provide care than it is to provide care. And the less care you provide, particularly with someone with any kind of propensity towards violence, the more likely you're going to see other problems. And might I add, what's even worse is a mentally ill person is six to 10 times more likely to be the victim of violence. And so there you have a secondary part of violence, which, uh, which could be prevented if we got people care, but all in all, it's a matter of getting them the care making sure the options are available in communities. Stop just throwing people in jail as a default mechanism. And and make sure that the main thing we're looking at is the right to be well- Instead of their right to be sick and having other rights taken away, too.
0: You mentioned the legislation that was signed by President Obama. Uh, more specifically, having to do with this repeal, uh, you you know you said that uh, you and you pointed out you described some of the problems that you have with uh, the executive order. Will you or would you introduce legislation that would address this specifically and be more specific with the diagnosis? who can be who should be on that database
1: well we're working on that and that actually can come from the executive order it can come from review with the social security administration when people are in place there Uh, we can work on that with uh, the new secretary tom price in terms of reviewing how a person is evaluated and a record step uh, but much as actually in the social security administration i want to make sure we cover this because the other we take away people's rights and we provide them with little or no care in this country, and I think that's shameful and unethical and horribly wrong. And even and you know, if a person is concerned about nothing else but cost, it is a huge cost driver to not provide that care. So yes, I fully intend to continue to work on this. Because if we identify these people and provide them better services, it's better off for everyone. And if someone meets those criteria, it's better off for everyone's safety,
0: too. Let's take a, a quick phone call, Congressman, because I know you're on a time limit here. Uh, Daphne from Camp Hills on the air. Daphne, your question for the Congressman?
2: Good morning. I have a comment. You know, everybody's so concerned about the rights of people to own guns. What about the rights of our children who go to school to, to be alive and, and other people in the society that get killed? These people who do these kind of things, they usually just do it once. They had like the guy in, in that killed the Amish children and the other schools, all the other schools and the theater and um, last year at the um, okay, church and everything. These people only have done it once, but they did have mental health problems, you know. All right, so thank that's you. My concern.
0: Thank you very much for your call, Congressman. I think what you're saying there is the weighing the rights. Obviously, you're talking about Second Amendment constitutional rights mm-hmm. against uh, the right uh, for other people to be safe.
1: Well, uh, about 10% of homicides are committed by someone with a mental illness, and about half of those in a mass murder are someone who is mentally ill. Uh, and the vast majority of other violent crimes involving a gun, that gun was not obtained legally uh, or held legally. Uh, a study done in Illinois at Cook County Jail said over 90, 95% of violent crimes with a gun, the person had stolen or had an illegal gun. So the legality of that is not seem to be working. Um, my bill focuses on those that I believe we can help, uh, those with mental illness, and make sure that, uh, again, if someone is, has a propensity to violence and having problems, the doctors have got to say they've got to move that next step with that 302 involuntary commitment, uh, and make sure that name then does get on the list, and, uh, and work along those lines. But many times, because we don't have place for folks, emergency rooms, upon people because there's not enough psychiatrists, psychologists, they're not doing the proper evaluations. Uh there's there's things that can be done with risk assessment, not always the best predictors, but we know when someone has a serious mental illness and violence, it can be a good predictor and we need to make sure those records go on in order to protect public
0: safety. Congressman, we have an email here from a listener who wanted to know, with uh, the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, if that does happen, how would you support uh, mental health care if it is repealed?
1: Uh, This is something I am working vigorously on with my colleagues to help them understand. That mental health care, well, if health care is just segmented, uh, fee-for-service, individualized things, it's like buying a car by the piece. It'll cost you twice as much. It's very inefficient. And so if, if a person is saying, well, I'll get my MRI here, I'll see this, I'll see this, very expensive process. For the person with mental illness, you have to have an integrated care model, whereby the physician has a team with a coordinated care, along with psychologists or social workers, uh, specialists involved, et cetera. So whether you're talking about something, whether it's a, a, when a person has a chronic illness, they're twice as likely to face depression. And so whether it's, it's diabetes or heart disease, or inflammatory bowel disease or migraine, to have as part of that coordinated care mental health services, it reduces costs. So I'm working with my colleagues to say, we have to support this within Medicaid, uh, to make sure we're, we're doing this. Because 5% of the people on Medicaid uh, are are uh, consume 50% of Medicaid spending, and virtually all those have some mental health component with them. That's from the chronic illness side. From the other side, when a person has a mental illness, they are highly likely, almost one to one likely, for example, schizophrenia, to have heart disease or diabetes. It has to have a comprehensive, integrated, coordinated care model. That's where the cost savings are by about 40% time after time after time. In Pennsylvania, this has been demonstrated with Geisinger model with UPMC model in western Pennsylvania, um, Colorado with Intermountain, um, uh, Kaiser in California. So I'm pushing hard to make sure these are coordinated together because when they're isolated, the costs go up, and it's, so it's a less humane, less efficient, and more costly model to not provide comprehensive care,
0: Congressman. Speaking of the Affordable Care Act, uh, one of the big news stories this week has uh, been the number of town hall meetings across the country that uh, some of your colleagues in Congress have uh, faced that have gotten kind of raucous. Uh, over the weekend, there was one in Washington County in your district uh, where you were invited, but uh, you you didn't attend. Uh, and you know, I actually have an email here from one of your constituents to ask that uh, y- if you would be having any town town hall meetings. Uh, first of all, why didn't you attend? Well, wait, wait, we
1: have to, I first have to go back to correct you. I was not invited to that one. That was put together by the SCIU uh, union uh, and they had contacted a disabilities organization that I've been to a number of times, worked with them several times on issues, good organization. Uh, and they, uh, this organization was told, Hey, help host this town hall meeting with Congressman Murphy. And uh, they, I, I was never invited. And uh, we talked to this organization say, said, Hey, look, the constant schedule, his booked, he can't be there. They knew I wasn't coming, they knew I wasn't invited, and then they misrepresented me in a fraudulent way. So it's very, very important. Second thing is, <clears throat> I've had thousands of meetings with groups over the years, and I'll continue to do that. Uh, I think telephone town hall meetings are the most effective because I can reach thousands of people at a meeting who can't necessarily get there, um, who may live in uh, far off places in Green and Washington County, other areas that can't get there. <clears throat> Uh, for those, however, understand this. We are now in a society where people, uh, there are some out there who do not want discourse. They don't want the uh, free speech or democracy to work, and they instead, by their guide and by their training when they demand these meetings, <coughs> men and them do it for the sole purpose of being disruptive. You can look it up. Their guide is called IndivisibleGuide.com. And it says go to these meetings, grab the microphone, don't give it up, shout them down. Here's how you boo, here's how you cheer, here's how you stack the audience. <coughs> Here's how you barrage the congressman's office with phone calls. And I might add, this is a tragedy. People are contacting my office a widow who's trying to get her Social Security benefits, a veteran who can't get his appointment to VA, someone who's struggling to get their Medicare and Medicaid straightened out. <clears throat> They're calling my office. In the meantime, these organizations work. This is sad to barrage our office with hundreds of calls a day so my staff can't take care of these people in need. I think this is tragic. That people are acting that way. What I want to see here is that we uh, that a society here where we're not focused on anger but focused on solutions. And when people have these meetings and they're there to hold up signs and berate and and, and insult each other, not just a member of Congress, but if someone disagrees, they insult each other. That's got to stop. And I look upon this again, uh, my defaulting to my role as a psychologist. If I'm doing counseling of a couple, maybe they're divorced and they're arguing over child custody, and if one of them, and if I'm trying to bring them together just to come a simple solution, who's going to have the child on their birthday or on a holiday or something? And one of the spouses says, yeah, I can't wait to be there because I'm going to give him or her a piece of my mind. I'm going to yell and scream, and I'm going to say, you know what? We're not having that meeting. We're going to deal with this in another way. I want us to get to this point where we can hear this. Now, let me just say this. I'm out running early this morning. Uh, I'm done. I meet two women there at the end of the trail. <clears throat> They said, hey, you're going to have a town hall meeting. I said, what's your concerns? We actually talked for a while. I got their names. I got their emails. We talked about these things because it was an honest discourse of what their concerns were, or my concerns are. This is the concern that's happening around the nation from organized groups who are not there to have uh, a conversation but are there to spew hatred. And as Americans, we can't afford to do that. We have very difficult times we're facing, and we've got to take care of these difficult times now.
0: Congressman, but how do you weigh, though, the, you know, serving your constituents and Mm -hmm. staying in communication with your constituents? I mean, you represent the people of your district. They are supposed to be able to see you, ask questions, um, you know, if they have concerns, say those things. So how do you weigh that if you don't want to appear in these meetings where, uh, you know, it can get out of hand, it can get raucous.
1: Well, if, if the purpose is to get out of hand and raucous, there's, that's not a meeting. Uh, that's an organized, you know, raucous uh, semi-riot. If it, the purpose is to get together and talk about things, I do those all the time. Uh, I've had several meetings this week with large and small groups where we had those kinds of exchanges. I welcome those. And to some of those who have... <clears throat> Uh, You know, come to my office and demonstrate with 50 people or so. I can't fit that kind of number of people in my office, nor would I do so because I've got staff who, and we have had actual threats, calls that are threats to me and my family. Uh, Those are pretty serious, and I take those very serious. We have staff who will get phone calls all day long with people using awful, disgusting profanity to them. That's not working, and that's not conversation. We all have to have bare responsibility. So I meet with small groups. I call people on the phone. Uh, I, I, I meet with some groups where we can we can handle these things together. I do that all the time. So it's not that I'm not doing that. It's just that we I have to make decisions also for the safety of my staff uh, and what they can handle, what we can all handle, uh, when people want to meet. But if you read the guides for these things, look, some people specifically say, don't have a counter proposal, don't have something substantive, get there, shout the person down, harass them and harass our staff. That is not a town hall meeting. That's not civil discourse. I make an appeal to people, let's all settle down and focus. This is our country. We are in this together. There's some good things with the Affordable Care Act. There's some things that aren't working with the Affordable Care Act. We've got issues with taxes and jobs and immigration. We've got to solve these, solve these things together. We're not going to solve it by having shouting and insult matches. It's just not going to work. And so I'm looking for ways of meeting with people to share that discourse so we can get to these solutions.
0: So you have actually been threatened and your family has been threatened? What kind yeah. of threats?
1: Well, I don't want to get into details and that. It's been turned to the Capitol Police. But <clears throat> um, these things occur. And so when that occurs... Uh, and when people are abusive to my staff, I have to protect them and draw the line. I just, I just can't let that continue to happen. Um, and and many times these are people who are working the agenda, call the congressman's office two, three, four, five times a day. Each, I mean, you, you can see the script, and we see them following the script, and they're there just to harass. It's just for the purpose of harassment. And <clears throat> so what happens is when we get these many, many phone calls each day, it piles up in our voicemail. My staff goes through them tries to discern who are the people with the real immediate needs that need to be taken care of, with veterans, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, other issues. Get to them. <clears throat> and the ones who are calling just to harass the staff, you know what, they're probably not going to get a call back. We we register their concern and that's where it goes. But if people reach the point where we can all work civilly and coherently and respectfully with each other, that's when we're gonna have some real results in moving forward.
0: But do you listen to the people, and, okay, the ones who are using profanity and, and, you know, that kind of thing, or being nasty and all that, but do you listen to the people who may disagree with uh, your stance on an issue? Oh, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. That's I, I learn from them. And hopefully they learn from me when we discuss things. And what we find out is many times people are listening to parts, uh, or they're reading from one source and not getting a whole picture, and I... um. Uh, I have an obligation to set the tone with these folks. uh, I have an obligation to bring people together, and I I do listen. But if they're there just for political reasons to attack or insult, um, nobody wants to listen. And I think if we all look into our own life, if someone starts treating any of us like that, anybody, if someone opens up the conversation with insulting or uh, being obscene, um, holding holding signs that are insulting, nobody's going to listen. I don't care where you are in life no one's going to do that. And so when I see people doing that, that's their intent to shut down conversation. I want them to set it aside. Let's sit down and talk.
0: Congressman Tim Murphy, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Thank you. Have a great day. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about these issues.
0: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing the repeal of an Obama era ban on the sale of firearms to about 75,000 people who have been diagnosed as mentally ill. Uh, we are now joined by Shira Goodman, Executive Director of Ceasefire PA, an organization dedicated to lobbying for gun safety laws. Ms. Goodman, welcome to the program and thank you for being patient.
2: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: All right. So you just heard Congressman Murphy and his justification for uh, voting for the repeal of uh, of, the, of that ban. First of all, your thoughts on that.
2: Well, I have a couple things. First of all, um, I agree with many things that the congressman said, which might surprise the congressman. I was very pleased to hear him reiterate um, what I think is not said often enough, which is that the people who are mentally ill are much more likely to become victims of crime. They are perpetrating a small percentage of the crime, but it it gets a lot of attention, and that we do need to find ways to get people help. I also agree with him that the regulation was really broadly drafted um, in a way that didn't look at potential dangerousness of people, It looked at certain diagnoses and this this issue of do they have a a beneficiary, a payee, who's helping them manage their finances, which is a different way than we treat mental illness generally with regards to um, loss of um, the ability to purchase or own a firearm. So we saw some problems with the regulation. I'm not pleased that uh, this congressional review procedure was used, which is kind of a knee-jerk reaction. It only requires a bare majority, and it undoes a year or more of a rulemaking process I think that um, I'm heartened to hear that the congressman and Senator Toomey also said this on the floor they're willing to go back and work with Social Security and I'm certainly gonna reach out to Congressman Murphy I've already reached out to the senator to see how can we do this to make sure that there are people who have certain diagnoses who have been um, who their doctors feel may become dangerous themselves or others who shouldn't have firearms so we can do that but I also shared the congressman's concerns about this particular regulation
0: okay one thing that he he kind of didn't touch on he mentioned it but you've touched on it too as that it's it's broad what do you mean by it's too broad so that you you had uh, some issues with it
2: so the way we treat mental illness in generally i believe is both overbroad and underbroad so under the federal law um if you have been adjudicated um mentally incompetent by a court, or if you've been involuntarily committed um, to inpatient treatment, that's when you lose your rights. So that captures a whole lot of people who may never in the future become dangerous to themselves or others. But those people have lost their firearm rights for the rest of their lives. Um, But the people it doesn't capture are people who may be in sudden crisis who maybe their family realizes is going through some kind of very serious emotional issue, whether it's a romance gone bad or a a loss of a job or some kind of stressful situation at work or in school, those people may really be in danger of harming themselves or others, and they've never been caught up in the mental health system, and they are not going to be prohibited from getting guns. So that's why somebody who's in a crisis can go to a gun store, pass their background check, and, and commit suicide. Right away, and so it's both under and over inclusive, and it doesn't work right now. That somebody with some of the diagnoses that the congressman mentioned—bipolar disorder, schizophrenia—we don't, we don't identify people by their diagnoses. But what the Social Security regulation did was say if people have uh, a mental disability under the Social Security regulations, and um, you will have somebody who is getting their checks for them, those people are now going to be prohibited purchasers. Many of them are unlikely to become dangerous um, to themselves or others, but they now all of a sudden were being put on this list without also um, the right to kind of appeal it beforehand. It was going to be an after-the-fact, appeals process. It also, though, what about people who had those mental disabilities but didn't have a payee? They weren't going to be put on this list. So it kind of was unbalanced, and it didn't really look at the heart of the issue, which is... Dangerousness. Now, as a congressman said, it's very hard to predict that. We're not good at it. But there are some mental health professionals and doctors and folks who have gotten together and are looking at this better. What is a good, a better predictor of dangerousness? Like the congressman said, pr- prior acts of violence are a good predictor of future acts of violence. We're learning that multiple um, driving while intoxicated might be uh, good indicia of future violence. Certainly, instances of domestic violence or domestic altercations are good predictors of that. Those are the kinds of things we should be focusing on, not simply diagnoses, not simply labels. Um, and I think that's why you saw this kind of unique um, collaboration or agreement, if not collaboration, by the NRA, the ACLU, mental health rights groups, and some folks you know, in our movement as well. Our movement, the gun violence prevention movement, was very split about this regulation. Some people feel that repealing it has now put guns in dangerous hands. Other people feel like it wasn't um, a good regulation and that we can do better.
0: Well, what about you? I mean, I have to admit, I'm a little bit surprised to hear you, you know, uh, saying some of the same things that Congressman Murphy has said. What about you Or as far as uh, whether you support or oppose the repeal and the ban itself?
2: So we we spoke with some of our senators and congressmen beforehand we told them we were concerned about things in the regulation we had had partners in the gun violence prevention community who had submitted comments to the social security administration during the rulemaking process that raised some of these concerns but they weren't um, they didn't end up being uh, amended into the final regulations and so when this repeal came up although we talked to congressmen congress represented well they're only congressmen in pennsylvania and senators Um, about our concerns and about again undoing a regulation kind of with a simple majority vote without discussion without hearings without the opportunity to to let Social Security have a chance to do it right we said we think there are problems and this could be done better with legislation with the new regulation with um, you know more study and we're willing to have that conversation it's also worth noting that this regulation actually never took effect so those people it's not like all of a sudden 75,000 people who are on a prohibited purchaser list are now erased. They naturally didn't get onto the rolls. It was just going to go into effect in January with a compliance date of December. So we had this window until December of when those people would have gone on the rolls to try and figure out a way to figure out who should be on that prohibited purchaser list. And I, I welcome those conversations. I hope that Congress um, will, will, will look at it and Social Security will look at it and find a way to do this better.
0: Your organization, though, is dedicated to, uh, well, you know, taking the guns out of the hands of, of people who shouldn't have them and actually fewer guns. I mean, I'm not going to speak for you, but when it comes to mental illness and guns, what would you personally and as an organization like to see? What can we do better to keep the hands, the, keep the guns out of hands of people who are dangerous?
2: So I think a couple things. First of all, Um, something that California and Connecticut have implemented, Pennsylvania has a proposal is called either a gun violence restraining order or a lethality restraining order, and it operates like a protection from abuse order or a temporary restraining order in the domestic violence context. So when somebody's family realizes that somebody is in crisis and presenting a danger to themselves or others, they can go to a judge and they can petition for temporary removal of firearms or a temporary ban on the person's ability to purchase firearms there might be a temporary order granted and then there'll be a fuller hearing due process protections, and that will capture the people that we just talked about the person in imminent crisis the person who has no criminal record who maybe never was caught up in the mental health system who maybe never as the congressman said got the help they needed never got a diagnosis and would legally be able to purchase we would we have a we've had a bill introduced the last few sessions by representative madeline dean of montgomery county we think that will help Um, We also think that the current prohibitors, the people who have been adjudicated um, incompetent or who have been involuntarily committed, are good prohibitors, but there should be a pathway back for restoration of rights. Should their uh, mental health providers declare at some point in the future that they are, um, you know, under treatment or they have been, you know, whether it's cured or they're no longer operating under that disability, they should have a pathway to get their rights restored. Um, And we should try to also look at what folks are telling us are better predictors of dangerousness. And maybe we could add to the list of prohibitions if you have a certain number of DUIs, if you have had certain misdemeanor offenses that tend to show a propensity to future violence. Those kinds of things, I think, would would do better at making our catch-alls less broad and more focused on the people who are likely to become dangerous. I think that, yes, you're right. We think that guns in the hands of people who shouldn't have them is, dangerousness, is dangerous, but it's not just the mentally ill, and it's not all mentally ill people who will become dangerous. And we need to start, you know, instead of just having these broad buckets, really focus down and look at who's committing the violence, who is committing suicide, how can we keep those people safer, and how can we keep ourselves safer from those people?
0: Shira Goodman is the executive director of Ceasefire PA. Ms. Goodman, thank you very much for being with us today.
2: Thanks, Scott. If I could just add one thing. Sure. I did hear your, your conversation at the end about town halls and about people contacting their congressmen. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and I've heard, and I, and I would just, you know, my, when, my, when we work with uh, folks in the gun violence prevention community, when we ask people to contact their representatives, we only ask people to call their own representative or senator because we know that folks like Congressman Murphy, Senator Toomey, will start saying, people from out of state, out of my district, are flooding my phone lines. People are being impolite we would really caution people call your own representatives. you have every right to do that you've elected them you've sent them to represent you and that is their job they work for you but you should always be polite and respectful you should be able to state your position and you should focus on that because you do not want to give these folks the opportunity to duck their real constituents to say that it's out-of-towners that it's out-of-staters um doing this because i think that there probably are some out-of-staters and out-of-towners who are flooding the congressman's phone lines and some people have been rude. My guess is it's a small percentage, but that should not then allow him and give him cover to say he's not going to do town halls, he's not going to talk to people. So I encourage people to exercise their rights to go to these meetings, be respectful, have a point, um, but really stay focused on what their issues are and who their representatives are. And that's the way... We, that's our obligation and our, and our right and our duty as citizens.
0: Shera Goodman of Ceasefire PA, good advice. Thank you very much for your call. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. WITF's next Smart Talk road trip takes us to the Pennsylvania Garden Show of York. Come see us broadcast live. Next Friday, March 3rd from 9 to 10 a.m. in the York Expo Center's Memorial Hall. We'll preview the garden flower and planting season with tips and advice to help develop your green thumb. The broadcast is free and open to the public. You can register today at witf.org slash events. Most Pennsylvania communities rely on volunteer firefighters for their protection. However, volunteer numbers have dropped dramatically from a peak of 250,000 during the 1970s to about 45 thousand today in Pennsylvania. A grant from the Federal Emergency Management Agency has allowed the Lancaster County Fire Chiefs Association to initiate a recruitment drive to sign up and train 210 new volunteer firefighters over the next three years. Joining us to discuss fire volunteer firefighter programs in central Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania overall, and Lancaster County is Dwayne Hagelgans, who is Commissioner of the Blue Rock Fire Rescue and the retired Lancaster Battalion Chief. Dwayne Hagelgans, welcome Welcome to the program.
3: Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me.
0: If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, those numbers are dramatic. Now, those were Pennsylvania numbers. Correct. uh, And we can talk about Lancaster County numbers, too. But this is an issue that the entire state is facing, those that rely on volunteer firefighters. Why do you think we have so few compared to, like, say, the 1970s?
3: Well, I think there's a lot of issues there's the time issue it's a, a tremendous time commitment it's a social issue you used to have uh, the volunteer firehouse was the center of your community where everybody went to to socialize um, people you know the neighbors were helping the neighbors and today we don't know our neighbors because people are too busy they don't have time to volunteer uh, it's a tremendous commitment when you talk about the training requirements that they have to do uh, too fat you know the both parents work in kids play in sports
0: so well, let's talk about those training requirements, because what I understand is that is one of the main reasons that keeps people from actually volunteering, right?
3: Correct. What happens is, you know, you bring somebody into your volunteer fire company, and then you start to explain to them that it takes hundreds of hours of training before they can ride on the fire engine and help their neighbors. Uh, it's a tremendous commitment. It's a tremendous commitment away from home to, to go to the training, to the training centers. So that is a major issue. But
0: at the same time, I mean, we're not talking... Talking about a normal job, we're talking about maybe life and death situations that not only for the people that they're protecting, but for themselves, the firefighters themselves, to to keep safe and to, to know what to do. Uh, I mean, so it is essential that they have some intense training.
3: Absolutely. There's there's no doubt about that. But what we're trying to do is we're looking at different models of how to do the training. So, you know, I work at Millersville University and we do online training. And if we could do some of this training, the theory online, and take away some of that time where they're traveling, where they're sitting in classrooms, we think that'll help a lot. So it's, it's not about they don't need the training. It's about sometimes how we offer the training and not everybody needs all the training. So that's an important part in the volunteer fire service. Everybody thinks, oh, I need I need to run into burning buildings. Well, you don't. We need volunteers for many, many aspects of what we do, from maintenance to to public education, you know, all of the different aspects of being a volunteer. So the training's important. It, it is important, but you know n- how we do it and and the amount of time we spend on it is uh is a lot
0: what can you learn online i am curious about that
3: well if you think about all the the theory so like we have a master's of emergency management program we have students at millersville, at millersville. Mm-hmm. so we have students from all over the country and we do all of the theory they still need to go out and do the practical application so you still need to go raise the ladders and stretch the hoses but if you think about all the theory uh you know fema has a lot of courses online that that people can take the theory aspect of it you know you can learn the back. You can learn how that all works online, and then just come and do the actual hands-on at the training center. That that will save a tremendous amount of time.
0: All right, the hands-on training. I, I know it's. I mean, when we're talking hundreds of hours, there's a lot to talk about. But generally what are the areas in which uh, someone who wants to be a volunteer firefighter need to be trained
3: well the the basics are you know you need to have the hazmat training you need to have the first aid training obviously that a lot of times the fire service is there first and then the basis of pulling hose lines uh, s- you know stretching in uh, wearing the breathing apparatus is one of the most important things obviously uh, firefighters and cancers is and issues to making sure you're properly in how to wear the breathing apparatus and then of course laddering and then um, life safety and rescue you know we do a lot of rescue whether uh, in homes or on the street with vehicle accidents we do a lot of uh, vehicle accidents and you have to know how to use all the life-saving tools.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know when we, we talk about uh, Pennsylvania the majority of Pennsylvania communities are protected by volunteers. Uh, you know makes me wonder are there communities that are in danger because there are so few firefighters out
3: there? Uh, absolutely. There's a lot of studies out there right now that show that the the response time is increasing because of the lack of volunteers. I was doing some quick research and found out that, you know, potentially one out of every four calls the fire department's not even getting out on, so then you have to wait for another uh, volunteer agency to come or another agency to come. There are um, potentially volunteer fire companies in Pennsylvania that will be closing their doors. So when they close their doors, what happens? I mean, some of you obviously, had, someone has to
0: obviously uh, protect an area.
3: Well, you have two choices. One is you you bring somebody from a little bit further away, or the other is you start to hire more career firefighters. And, um, you know, we talk about pension deficits in Pennsylvania. Uh, they figured, they did a study, and they figured it cost about $1.5 billion to replace all the volunteers with career firefighters in Pennsylvania. <laughs>
0: And we don't know where that... Well, yes, we do. We know we, we come from taxpayers, <laughs> yes. just uh, whether it's state taxpayers or local taxpayers. Correct. Now, you were a battalion chief in the city of Lancaster, Correct. and I imagine you were a paid firefighter Correct. there. Correct. Uh, and now with Blue Rock, a volunteer Correct. firefighter. What's the difference between the two?
3: Well, the, the biggest difference is you know there are areas that definitely need career firefighters. The the, the metropolitan areas, the city areas, You know Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, New York, uh, Lancaster, York, Harrisburg, those areas need career firefighters firefighters because of the, the dense population and the amount of call volume. But when you start to get into more rural areas, you know, the training is the same. It's just a matter of the call volume is less and, and the natures of the call are, are not as great.
0: One of the big differences, obviously, is you don't get paid. I mean, when you're yes. volunteering, <laughs> you are volunteering. Correct. And as you said, it's taking a lot of time.
3: There aren't very many volunteer jobs where you risk your lives. That's correct. And there's a lot of occupations out there that you'll see that nobody's volunteering to do. Uh, But firefighting is one of those where people like to help their community, assist their community. Neighbor helping neighbor is what it was based on. The Volunteer Fire Service started in Philadelphia with Ben Franklin. And so we're trying to maintain this tradition that started in Pennsylvania to help our neighbors.
0: We had a phone call here from Linda in Hommelstown, wanted to know, uh, what about women firefighters? What kind of jobs do women usually do? It's often considered a man's job, but we know there are women firefighters. Are there more women volunteering or what?
3: Well, I'll be honest with you. There are more women than there were 30 30- 40 years ago. And to be honest with you, uh, we'll take any woman coming through the door. Women can do pretty much the same thing as the men can do when it comes to firefighting. When I got into the city in 1983, we hired our first female firefighter. Uh, She had a long career in the city, and we've since hired some others. So there are a lot of women in the volunteer fire service also, and and we'll take male or female.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Are there people, though, that are actually turned away? I mean, for Uh, physical reasons
3: well there there are some physical requirements but the the thing that we try to emphasize in the volunteer fire service is that there's so many jobs everybody can do something and if if we can get people to even do like public education events uh, that will take and add time to the the other volunteers uh, that are actually responding to the calls you'll take that off their plate to save them some time so there's lots of jobs in the volunteer fire service that need done and it doesn't matter if you're 15 or, or 115 uh, please come sign up
0: you'd look for a hundred fifteen-year-old sure oh, okay. All right. I, we just put that out there now. Okay, all right. Here's an email from uh, Paul it says my next-door neighbor wants to volunteer for the local fire department But during his background check they discovered 12 years ago He has a felony drug charge and told him he would not volunteer because of that couldn't volunteer because of that I know that every department has their own rules and policies But when you are in need of volunteer, shouldn't there be some forgiveness?
3: Absolutely. I think that everybody deserves a second chance. Uh, the, the main thing that we have, the main thing that we're working on now in the, in the volunteer fire service is the background checks for the child safety. But you know, Which other is background-
0: relatively new, post Abs- Sandusky,
3: yeah. Uh, absolutely. But we um you know, we do background checks and you know we, we do have forgiveness in our organization. I can't speak for every organization, but but you're right. When you need volunteers, uh you know, you need to look at what happened, when it happened, and then you need to make a decision.
0: I mean is there a zero tolerance? I imagine that uh, every department is different. But I mean example there, twelve years, that sounds like a zero tolerance, you know, felony drug charge. Now we don't know what exactly what right. that was. Right. But um, that you know, there may be some departments that say you have any kind of criminal record, you're gone.
3: There there are absolutely and I could you know I could name a Departments that are like that, but not every departments like that. And I can tell you, in the volunteer fire service, you know where we are community oriented, uh, neighbor helping neighbor. So, so you have somebody that had something in their past. If they can help us today, we're going to bring them in. All right. Now, I mentioned in the introduction that uh, Lancaster County, the
0: Fire Chiefs Association, has gotten a grant. Uh, what is it? Like three hundred thousand dollars? About
3: three hundred sixty thousand dollars
0: to recruit two hundred ten. Okay, that sounds awful expensive. But is this something that is new that uh, you know, you, there's a media blitz out there to try to recruit volunteers.
3: Correct. We um, we have a th- it's a three year campaign to try and recruit volunteers for the entire county, and that's what's unique about this. It's not individual fire companies recruiting. So if you don't know where to go, you go to becomeafirefighter.org, org, and then we'll direct you to your local volunteer fire company to help you out. And while, while it sounds expensive, if you think about how expensive it would be to replace the volunteers with career firefighters in some of these rural areas, um, it's it's not that expensive. And so what what we're trying to do is is create a three-year campaign, and it's a blitz. We're going to do you know all the radio, TV, uh, social media, anything we can do to get the word out there that we need volunteers, and we need all volunteers. You know, for any capacity that you want to serve. We'll take you. Uh,
0: we have a phone call from Michael in York. Michael, you're on the air. Thank you. Um,
1: one, I I live in York City, and uh, I agree that cities like York and Lancaster and Harrisburg have to have a paid force, a paid firefighting force. But we also have in York nine volunteer fire companies, and they never recruit in the minority community. You know, all all the faces are white. And um, I've brought this up with a number of people, but not, nothing seems to get done about it. But I would think, you know, a lot of the volunteers in urban areas, the volunteer fire companies, they don't even live in the urban area anymore. And so I think there needs to be some uh, effort maybe by the paid department to fill the volunteer staff um,
0: from the people
1: who live in the community.
0: All right, thank you very very much for your call, Michael. What
3: about that? Agree 100%. Uh, Again, you know, the the Volunteer Fire Service has been predominantly, uh, you know, white males, but the reality of it is we need to diversify. You know, we talked about women earlier and minorities also. you know, we do a lot of recruiting at the university, and again, we try to reach out to a diverse population. I know the cities, the career departments uh, are working a lot on diversity, trying to bring in a diverse background of, of members, and we need to do the same thing. We a- Absolutely. Uh,
0: we only have a couple minutes sure. left. Um, you mentioned that, you know, if this doesn't improve, if we don't, if we continue to see this decline in volunteers uh, and the numbers drop, that the option is that we, Have paid fire departments. Correct. Manheim Township in uh, Lancaster County, I understand, looking into hiring three uh, paid firefighters. Okay. Uh, Is that a trend? Is that something that we will get to, uh, you know, across the state where? Uh, you know the, the, there are communities not being protected that for that protection that money will have to be paid and there will be paid firefighters
3: I think absolutely in the metropolitan areas that's going to be a trend I mean Manon Township is is building and they're so robust and they're expanding and they have all the highways it's not a rural township no and, no. and so, so I, they, they will absolutely have to do that in those types of areas I will say Pennsylvania has about 80% of its population is protected by volunteers currently uh, but those metropolitan in areas you know they they have the career and manham township's an example you know they're right on the edge of the city they're very very busy it's it's challenging to get volunteers to do that
0: uh, we only have about 30 seconds sure. left and duane i want to thank you very much for being with us today what about paid firefighters i mean have we seen any decline absolutely increase?
3: we what, have oh absolutely when i uh, got into the city we were at about 120 today i think they're at about 70 in Lancaster city why is that uh, money Money, money, money.
0: You mean uh, that the city doesn't have enough money to pay for that 120 number? Correct. Okay. Would, if money was not an issue, which is a dumb question, Mm -hmm. I know, uh, would we have uh, people who would want to become professional firefighters? I only have about 10 seconds left.
3: Sure. I think that money is always an issue, but yeah, absolutely.
0: Mm -hmm. Dwayne Hagel Gens is uh, the uh, commissioner of the Blue Rock Fire Rescue, retired Lancaster Battalion Chief, and teaches at the Millersville University. Dwayne, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, well, we have a number of uh, topics, including the annual spelling bee here on Smart Talk.